line at New Red Order, or NRO for short, 1-888-NEW-RED-1. We're so excited for your call. Thanks for calling. 1-888-NEW-RED-1. New Red Order, or NRO for short, is a public secret society dedicated to expanding indigenous agency and achieving decolonization, which brings about the repatriation of all indigenous land and life. We're so excited for your call. Thank you for calling 1-888-NEW-RED-1. If you'd like to participate in our informants program, press 1. What do you suppose that means? What, honey? You see the graffiti on that sign back oh, there? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it said land back, didn't it? I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 111 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. On this episode, I'm joined by artist and filmmaker Adam Khalil. I first learned about Adam's work through the 2016 experimental documentary Say, which Adam co-directed with his brother Zach. The psychedelic and acerbic film mixes genres, perspectives, and timelines to offer this complex interpretation of the ancient Seven Fires prophecy of the brothers' own Ojibwe people, particularly in and around what is today Sault Ste. Marie in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. This is a story which predates and predicts European contact. We also talked about Adam's many collaborations, including New Red Order, also this recent uh, Rastafarian vampire film, Nosferasta, a collaboration between himself, Oba, and Bailey Schweitzer, and many, many other things as well. The week of February 20th, Adam will be doing a series of events at Grand Valley State University in Michigan, where I'm in the middle of my last semester as the artist in residence. I'm really looking forward to getting to participate in these. Check the episode description for a link to event details uh, if you're going to be in the area. Talking with Adam was a real honor and, frankly, a blast. Just such a cool, thoughtful, and warm person. Goddamn. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here's my conversation with Adam Khalil. Khalil, welcome to Humor in the Abject. Thanks so much for joining me. Ooh, thanks for having me. Uh, Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> You're the first person who's ever said that, actually. <laughs> um, so I want to contextualize your work properly um, by starting with something that's very central to it, which is the importance of collaboration. And I want to talk about that in terms of pursuing ambitious and genre-bending art. So I imagine as a filmmaker, of course, that collaboration is just practical um it's productive you got to work with a lot of people to make a movie uh but i wonder if you might describe too why the act of collaboration is important to you maybe theoretically or philosophically or even politically um from one of those frameworks yeah for sure uh i think because my background is kind of like in film and art but kind of started off in film that like there's this idea within film history, like auteur theory, that like everything kind of comes top down from the director. And that, James Cameron. Yeah, big time. <laughs> <laughs> and then I always felt like icky and antithetical to the work I wanted to try to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just thinking about like those structures or hierarchies, especially within like film production, like James Cameron to even like indie stuff, 
it almost has like this like military hierarchical structure where it's like mm-hmm. there's this kind of chain of command and that's super important for doing things efficiently and quickly but it also feels like people can kind of box themselves or corner themselves uh without being able to be kind of like n- nimble with a project or to move with the project mm. they kind of get like locked yeah. in or stuck so i think the other thing is like a lot of filmmaking stuff it's like you have to make decisions every second like you have to be accountable for every second on screen which means therefore like every second is a decision like do i cut away from this do i hold on this do i mm-hmm. cut to something else and to have two or more people for that feedback session just kind of expedites the process or gets me out of my own neurosis of like yeah. second guessing or questioning something so it's also this double bind where it's it, it expedites things in the sense where decision making can be somewhat faster because I'm not lost within my own thoughts, but it also slows that slows things down because there's a need to kind of have like discourse and dialogue about how to move forward. Um, but yeah, and I also have kind of like always been friends with musicians and involved in like DIY music scenes. And there was something about the ability for musicians in those scenes to be able to kind of move between collaborations and projects Mm -hmm. that was always really inspiring and seemed fun. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I guess starting to think about filmmaking more as like music making in terms of like, you could have a super group or you could hire a session musician or you could do like Mm -hmm. a solo EP. And uh, just thinking about like how LPs and EPs and films and shorts have a similar kind of economy. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And kind of blending those two was really appealing. And also it's just like there's so much work that involved that gets involved in making longer films that just to have uh yeah, the ability to kind of divide and conquer on different aspects of it. Yeah. Do you have any I'm guessing the answer is no, but do you have any qualms about the kind of shared authorship that comes with that or having to relinquish that kind of I guess just from like the artist ego perspective. Uh, it's the position. biggest issue is like trying to explain what we do. Uh-huh. Like I think that's my biggest hang up because it's just confusing to be like, oh no, that's with this person and that project's actually with these two people, but that oh, person right, worked yeah. on this. <laughs> like the uh-huh. legibility of like how all this stuff is interconnected is really difficult to draw out because it's not the traditional way that artists operate or I don't know if that's true, yeah. but yeah. I think in like DIY scenes though, like you're talking about maybe much more so, but probably not in our contemporary perception of like the gallery artist yeah. or, or the, or the artist showing in a museum or something like that. Yeah. It's totally confusing if it's like, well, we want to include this thing in the show and you're like, well, yeah, I worked on with these six other people. So like they're kind of in the show too. Yeah. 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 And then we're like, if they want to, sometimes we've been offered to like include works that I'm a part of, but it's two different collaborative constellations. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And like, just to get people to understand that, I'm like, well, you can't ask them about that because they weren't involved with that. But these people mm. are. And then all of a sudden, it's like eight people that the curator has to talk to to get <laughs> permission to figure out travel for. It's like working with a ska band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like multiple. And each of the members switch between bands, too. So it gets I think they, I think, yeah, that's what, that's what they did. Um. <laughs> One of the first uh, pieces of work that you were involved in that I saw was Inatase, which reimagines the ancient Ojibwe Seven Fires prophecy. And you did that with your brother, Zach. Um, and 
that's from 2016, right? Yeah. Okay, so you and Zach, if we go back even 10 years before 2016 to Sault Ste. Marie, um, maybe in like late 90s, early 2000s, are you and Zach as kids collaborating before you think about <laughs> capital A art? Yeah, I mean, my running joke is that we've known each other for a long time and have similar life yeah, experiences. <laughs> um, I don't think we were like consciously creative at that point. I mean... I was really obsessed with basketball and my brother was as well. So like we would design our rooms and like collage stuff from slam magazine and see who could come up with the best collage, but also help each other out. I had a huge collage wall in my bed. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I made like a tile of basketball cords cards over this gigantic wall that took like two or three weeks. I was like, oh, really? maybe this is where the art interest actually came from. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was my brother's middle school basketball coach. I don't know. The closest we got to How, was that. A, was that a smooth relationship, or was that like a point of contention? It was smooth, actually. It was kind of funny. I don't want to go too deep in the weeds, but it was like <laughs> me and my best friend were like in tenth grade, and we got to coach my brother's seventh grade basketball team. And my brother's best friend uh, was like a child basketball prodigy. Yeah. And they were like the Shaq and Kobe, and we were like the Phil Jackson. <laughs> and we just steamrolled the entire seventh grade league. We didn't lose a single game. <laughs> it was like also, yeah. All the other coaches were like actual adults, and they were getting super mad at us because we were just I can imagine. <laughs> kids coaching kids and dominating. What? <laughs> <laughs> That, uh, <clears throat> that 2016 movie um, that I was talking about, and not to say, um, is I've read you describing it as that part of it was this idea to reject the imperative of efficient extraction of information in favor of this open-ended, time-sensitive, community-based approach. So as you two are working on this film in uh, what is today the Sioux, where you grew up, um, what does that type of filmmaking look like on the ground? Like, what is that time-sensitive or open-ended approach like that people might not really associate with when they think of a film set? Yeah, I think for especially like traditional documentaries or like social issue documentaries, people are going into places and really looking for the soundbite. Or they're like, all right, this is great, but like we only really need this bit, you know? And like the kind of uh, like anecdotally, um, there was like a relative of ours, uh, Pauline, that we interviewed. And we asked Pauline to like introduce herself. Uh, and then she started like, oh, my great, great grandfather art was, I was like, whoa, that's not mm-hmm. introducing yourself. That's introducing like yourself and many relations of family deep and generations back. And I feel like I've been on like uh, commercial documentary shoots where like the person doing the interview would be like, no, 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 stop. Actually, could you just introduce yourself? We'll get to mm-hmm. that later. Um, but for us, that was really important to not kind of predetermine or overdetermine or be overbearing on what people's responses were. So I think the idea was to like create an exchange of information where we were just, I guess that was also the benefit of the seven fires prophecy because it's an oral story. Everyone has a different interpretation of it. So it wasn't like we were vetting if someone's interpretation was right or wrong, but it also became this kind of like MacGuffin to open up a larger conversation about the history and present nature of our community mm-hmm. and a way just to allow people to offer up the knowledge that they wanted to give us as opposed to trying to to weasel around and kind of manipulate people right. through questions. Yeah, instead of going in with a predetermined kind of like, I guess you have a perspective and you intend to sort of like 
get content to fill that container. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. the disadvantage to that is that like we did like 40 interviews and like the shortest one was two hours and the longest was eight. <laughs> so it's like the editing process becomes like a behemoth at that point. Sure. But that's yeah. also like this weird gift because you get to spend time with the people that you talk to again and actually like really get to listen to them. Yeah. Uh, we had a pretty amazing experience over the summer where we got to meet Alanisa Bomsalin, who's like the I don't know, the godmother of native documentary. She made this movie 270 Years of Resistance. That really changed my okay. life. Um, and she just kept saying the word is sacred. The word is sacred. Hmm. Uh, and that has really helped in terms of kind of like getting back into this documentary interview, heavy intensive format to remember that. So that's a pretty non-traditional, obviously, approach to go into uh, a space to document it and do that slow kind of timeline subversive approach, right? Like you think about, oh, well, we need to get these types of shots or get this point of view across. So you have a, a suite of things that you want to do as you go into a place, but instead you're going at it very differently. And I think that those, teaks are, or those techniques rather are mirrored in the documentary's final product, which has this kind of extra linear uh, narrative and also narration. Like people, as you're saying, like these interviews and stuff, people appear and reappear. Um, and there's also all these complex and overlapping cycles of imagery. And uh, is this look and feel that you kind of got to in that film back in 2016, what I've heard you describe previously is something you're trying to get to, which is a cinematic language that's inherently Anishinaabe? Yeah. And I, <clears throat> I think it was a like that was kind of our mandate was to figure out how to articulate what an inherently Anishinaabe or Ojibwe form of filmmaking would be. Yeah. But I think also we were also trying to hold simultaneously engaging with multiple audiences. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something across our practices that we always consider the audience. Uh, whereas I feel like a lot of times in art circles, that's poo-pooed. Like you're not supposed to care about the audience. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to just express yourself regardless. Except when you're in school and they demand that you explain it all the time. That's true too, but they demand you explain it so that way you can express yourself truly or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I got uh, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think we were also like trying to be in dialogue with the documentary community and experimental film community and an artistic community that we were also kind of running parallel to, but they kind of yeah. had different... Uh, they had different hierarchies in terms of the audience we were most kind of beholden to or most desiring to communicate with directly. But I think that also allowed us to think about uh, films, not just on this like a horizontal continuum of like beginning, middle and end, but also thinking about like a verticality to how we're communicating with different audiences. So there could be elements hmm. that are only understood from certain perspectives. Yeah. Uh, but also trying to do that in a way where we're not like leaving people out you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, there's still totally. a hand holding someone through no matter what prior knowledge they're coming through it with. Yeah, totally. Like these tiers of different tiers of access or different points of uh, entry, while not having it be, uh, I mean, certain things are definitely exclusive, right? Just by nature of like, somebody doesn't get what one thing or another is, but that one can kind of still be, uh, for you know, not to use this in a negative sense, but be entertained watching this the whole time, yeah. even if they maybe don't have all of the knowledge, but you can kind of sow seeds of like welcoming people into it with the knowledge. Um, so you get all these different types of individuals who might watch it. I mean, yeah, it's kind of, it's funny. I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, is this an art film or a documentary, or is it like a really long music video or is it, you know what I mean? It's all of these different things simultaneously. And I can think of all of these different audiences that I know that would 
come to it and describe it a totally different way when they walk away from it. But like agree upon, like they know what they saw. Yeah. Everybody saw the same thing, but they have a totally different way to explain what it was that they saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that's definitely what we were going for. Also, because I think there's these kind of arbitrary distinctions that were pretty prevalent back then and still are around now, but I feel like are eroding, mm -hmm. especially in yeah. film, where it's like, is it a documentary? Is it a narrative film? Is it a hybrid? Like hybrid was really hot. 10 years ago, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. people are still using it or invoking that. But I think sure. our stance was like, well, it's a movie. And like our running yeah. joke has been that like, you know, nine out of 10 <laughs> people aren't like, oh, I saw a great uh, right. middle length experimental uh, documentary last night. They just say like, I saw a movie. Totally. Yes. It is a movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in movies, um, just like collaboration, I think that time uh, has both practical and theoretical applications of the work. So maybe on the on the practical side of things, when you're editing and arranging one of your films, how are you playing with or subverting the structural conventions of time? Like, are you are you is this intuitive or are you like, oh, I actually like if you looked at the way that I plot these things out, they actually it's the layout of this thing X Y. You know what I mean? How is the how does time work as you're going towards it as a structure? What? That's a good question because it's also like how we arrive at our conception of time within the structure is also using time as a medium. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, like Anatase took four years to make from start to finish. Empty Metal took four years. Nose for Us has taken five. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that is also like both me and my brother were fortunate to study and be friends with Peggy Awash, who's an amazing artist. And she kind of taught us to make films backwards. Hmm. she's like shoot edit write all at the same time hmm. and let those things inform each other yeah so it's like there were many times where we thought we had a structure and then realized oh actually like we have to go back and do this and then that would totally change the entire look of everything so it's like yeah it's this idea of like being able to be nimble and move with the project mm -hmm. and also like constantly like working on it in terms of trying every possible configuration it's i'm it's like band practice or yeah. playing gigs before you really it i mean it very much not to keep you know not to beat a dead horse or something but it does very much feel like you're playing gigs you're going out you're doing like chunks of it and trying it out and then revisiting that you know and going oh okay well this is good so let's go reshoot this thing or we need to structure this slightly differently and get some different kind of footage instead of which i assume not to cast too uh i don't, I don't want to like broadly accuse filmmakers of X, Y, or Z, but I imagine you're kind of like, well, this is the stuff that we shot. We can't go back. So we kind of have to make this work for what we're trying well, to do. Well, that's like and which, traditional film production. You write the script, yeah. you shoot what the script says, and then you edit it based on that, which is like, basically you start off the finished product at the beginning, and then you just yeah. keep working yourself further and further into a corner. Whereas with this approach, it's like you could discover something halfway through that actually like makes the first half of however long you've been working on it totally irrelevant, but there's like a much mm -hmm. better direction to be going towards. <laughs> Do you think that that, um, and I, I'm imagining it must, have being in that kind of space or that headspace when you're making work and you're collaborating and you're kind of existing in this, um, I'm not going to use the L word, uh, you're existing in a space. Is that liminal? <laughs> <in> between. <laughs> you can bleep it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm thinking about this, the way that the films that you work on seem to constantly be simultaneously looking forward and backwards at the same time and that that is this kind of um kind of non-western like almost anti-productive in the capitalist sense um orientation like this idea that everything is not a a to b necessarily like this is 
capital P progress and that it gets towards like uh, an expansion or something like that. And that that kind of looking forwards and backwards at the same time, I think is consistent across so much of your work, like being in this space that is four dimensional almost. Yeah. And I think maybe not to belabor the point about like film structure, but like in terms of yeah. the linear horizontalness of films, there's the idea of like an arc, you know what I mean? Like the narrative yeah, arc. Sure. And I think we've talked amongst all the collaborations about this kind of like a spiral formation as opposed totally, to that. Totally, yeah. So it's also yeah. like the, the, the thesis or what the project is really about is in the center, but maybe we never actually get to it. But by going, mm -hmm. circling around it, an audience can figure out what it is from the contours that we're leaving around the outside of it. Yeah, yeah. And that allows also an ability to like revisit people in places at different times or coming back to the same time in different moments. And that kind of jumbling of past, present, and future that I find can be really rewarding in terms of unlocking like a kind of like critical fabulation of how we want the world to be or how yeah. we want the past to be, like a kind of wish fulfillment. Right, yeah. And also, I mean, just understanding that uh, whatever echoes of the past or things of the past are extant, like they're happening now. And those things are present simultaneously in these sort of... Uh, one's ancestors and one's descendants are kind of like in this soup at the same time, totally. I guess, as someone's going through it. Um, you mentioned Nosferasta, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And that's a uh, collaboration with uh, Bailey Schweitzer, with whom you directed the 2018 Empty Metal that you just mentioned too. Um, uh, but also with uh, Oba, who appears in Empty Metal. Um, and so that film is called Nosferasta, and that came out in 2021. More recently, yeah, 2021. Um, okay, I want to talk a little bit about that, but first, how do you describe Nosferasta to the uninitiated when you're just trying to say, like, what genre it is? Oh, the elevator what kind pitch? Of movie? Yeah, what's, what kind of movie well, is it? Well, the easiest one is it's a Rastafarian vampire movie. Cool. Okay, <laughs> good. So we've got genre. That's good. So how do you describe then or how might you kind of talk a little bit about the the storyline or the arc if we're talking about this kind of there's this traditional arc of storytelling Nosferasta follows this very different kind of path um would you kind of for somebody who hasn't seen it what happens in this film like uh who's Oba and what is uh well what's Oba's character's name in the film Oba is it he's well Oba, maybe okay. let me... he's king elf he's king elf and empty, empty metal. metal yeah 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 Although... okay there might be an empty metal cinematic okay, universe where they're sure, yeah. The same thing well, see, this is Adam. This is why people are confused when you talk to. No, I'm just kidding. But that no, I was thinking that the whole time that I'm watching it, I watched them in the wrong order though. But it it was fun. Yeah, hopefully. I watched Nosferatu first, and then I watched Empty Metal later, and I was like, oh wait, are these? <laughs> no, but okay. So what's what's happening in this film? Okay, so maybe like the elevator pitch for the movie, and then I can zoom out a little bit because yeah, give sure. it some context. Perfect. Is that uh, yeah. it's about. Uh, a West African person who's sold into slavery and tries to commit suicide during the Middle Passage only to wash on shore and be bitten by Christopher Columbus, who's the first vampire in the New World, quote-unquote, uh, mm -hmm. because Columbus realizes he needs non-white vampires in order to infiltrate and undermine indigenous and African liberation movements in said New World. Mm -hmm. And because the uh, vampiric bite is some kind of like colonial capitalist fabulation that... Uh, that brainwashes people. Oba's used in service of Columbus's plan up until 1992 when he smokes weed for the first time and that kind of unlocks this uh, liberatory potential and mm -hmm. young Oba decides to kill Christopher Columbus and in our world uh, once you murder your progenerator you start aging yourself. So flash forward mm -hmm. to present day 
old Oba, real Oba, is uh, kind of struggling against the kind of uh, the the bureaucratic uh, Babylon that he helped implement. One of the things about it that I took away after watching it is this insistence that the the past is not this thing that is closed. Yeah, that that kind of like we were just talking about that it is not this. Um, that there's not a discrete event that you might describe as this thing or that as Columbus landing, whatever. You yeah. Know, that this is that that the reverberations of these things are constant and almost like impossible to even find a cutoff point or something like that. And so, the way that the film jumps back and forth, it feels like it's kind of just trying to show that in this really poetic way. Yeah, I also think like doing the research for the movie, starting to think about like yeah, 1492 is like a sci-fi movie as opposed to like a period piece. Mm-hmm. kind of started unlocking all this potential we're just realizing like yeah how the entire world changes in that moment and we're still kind of grappling with those changes yeah but i guess maybe outside of that elevator pitch which is a really important context this is the, this is also oba's life story yeah uh, and he's adamant that this is true that he's a reformed vampire and that he first arrived in trinidad in 1504 um and he had this other afterlife but now he's kind of trying to atone for. Uh, but like that's like real. Like he'll tell you straight up. That's, mm-hmm. that's his origin story. Yeah. He's telling people in the movie this yeah. the whole time. And outside the movie yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Which makes yeah. it even more confusing because it's like where's the line? And you and Bailey are, this is just uh, the three of you with Oba, you just have, you're just friends, but you also decided to make this movie out of, you worked together on Empty Metal. Yeah, so I lived in Brooklyn for like 12 years, and Obo was my neighbor across the street, and he's kind of like the mayor mm-hmm. of the block. He also makes this world-famous corn soup, and every Friday and Saturday, he'd come out with this huge like five-gallon Ethiopian pot of the soup, and we just mm-hmm. kind of became friends, and he would give me free soup. And we started hanging out a lot, and then weirdly enough, we actually had a band for a while called mm-hmm. Dead Companionship. And we were working on empty metal, just thinking about all different kinds of like mm, different kinds of liberation groups throughout the history of the 20th century and spending a lot of time with Oba, learning more about Rastafarianism and also like this weird kind of kinship or connection. I think we both felt because like where I grew up, I had a lot of like funny uncles, not like Mm -hmm. uh, blood relatives necessarily, but kind of like... Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, pieces people who were complicated and had a kind of trickster mentality, and uh, but were also like really engaged intellectually and culturally. Uh, and Oba really felt familiar in that way, and I think that was hmm. a mutual feeling that he expressed about spending time with me and my brother. Yeah, I think that helps get things off the ground. And then I was like, oh, Oba would be great for this movie, Empty Metal, and introduced him to Bailey. And Oba loved the idea, and we kind of went ahead with it. And as we were shooting Empty Metal, Oba kept being like. I got an idea for a way better movie. Can we get done with this bullshit so we can get to the real movie? Really? And we're like, what are you talking about, <laughs> man? He's like, Nosferasta. And we're like, whoa, that is a title. <laughs> and then we kept asking about it. He's like, I'll tell you about it later. I'll okay. share it with you later. And then I went like on some trip and I came back and I was like getting out of a cab with like luggage. And Obi's like literally mm. across the street from me. So we see each other like five times a day. And he was like, did you find anything in your pillowcase, Adam? I was like, well, no, clearly I'm just getting my luggage out. I'm about to go in. Why? He's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe there's something in your pillowcase. And uh, he and our other friend, Alex Esco, who plays Queen Omega in Empty Metal, had kind of uh, written the first 
handwritten the first uh, treatment for what Nosferatu would be on the back okay. half of a Christian prayer book, and then somehow got into my apartment and put it in my pillowcase. <laughs> <laughs> and then after reading With it, that? Oba was like, this is going to be a big winner. Hollywood's going to be after this one. And if you don't make this movie, I'm going to kill you. So <laughs> there's also really high stakes to finish that project. Um, sure, yeah. And also, yeah, the lines between fiction and reality are a little blurred between the making and the actual film already. Right. I think that it speaks to, I guess, kind of the culture that you're producing when making works. Like, so you're making this film, Empty Metal, and you've got these people in it who are also just in your life as friends, um, and they feel enough of... Uh, they feel enough agency or enough enfranchisement by the process to be like, well, I have some creative input and I feel that so much so that in fact I will introduce the idea for the next film. And I know that you will at least entertain it, you know, like you're not this unapproachable dictatorial kind of director that you're already co-directing, that you're already working with these people and then they're kind of like, yeah, okay, this is what we're going to do next. And you just sort of follow that is I think a very different way of uh, approaching <laughs> film for sure <laughs> yeah and I, uh, not to keep mixing the metaphors but the band thing not only that but mm -hmm. also like a kind of family mm -hmm. especially for empty metal like everyone in that film is someone either lived with or like live within a two block radius of and have collaborated and been very close friends with yeah and so like that film i i I want to hesitate from being like super kumbaya in terms of like, oh, we're all just a collaborative family. Like it, right. it a lot of yeah. these projects, like Empty Metal especially, it's like Bailey and I authored that thing. You know what I mean? But we couldn't have sure. done it without the input of our friends who were in it. Because I think we were also trying to articulate something that was scary to us and that we were unsure of and that we kept going back and forth on in terms of like the necessity or fallacy of political violence. Yeah. So, it was also a way to kind of like work through that question with our friends who also happen to be like artists that we love and admire and respect. Do you want to talk a little bit about what um, what's at the center of Empty Metal? Like it is this, you just hinted at it, but it is this like, it was a profoundly intense movie. Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's very intense in a way that was, uh, I was thinking not just about, and, and I don't mean strictly the, I don't mean strictly the content of the film, but rather the engagement by the actors and the filmmakers in even in the proposal yeah. of what the film kind of puts forward, I think is like, all I kept thinking about was like, holy shit, like this is in public. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I mean, in a great way, I, yeah. it was, that's what I mean by it was, an in, it's an intense piece of art that I was just like, holy shit, after I watched it. Yeah, I mean, we were younger when we made it, so I'm not sure we would do it the exact same way now, but I'm happy that uh -huh. we did, and I'm still kind of shocked that it was able to be out in the world. Before it was like out in the world, there was a lot of questions about if it was even like legally okay to do this, uh, <laughs> which was also really enticing. You know what I mean? I like, ooh. Should we, should we just, should we, whoever's listening and is going nuts, just being like, well, tell me what happened. Should we not so that they have to see? It? I have like a short elevator <laughs> pitch, which is, it's about a okay. band that stops making music and starts killing killer cops. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, good. That's very yeah. good. Yeah, so I hope that intrigue that will intrigue most listeners. I Hopefully, think fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I was going to ask you about, uh, you mentioned science fiction previously, and I, and I think about speculative fiction a lot or speculative forms of fiction, whether it's sci-fi or cli-fi, like climate fiction or like new weird stuff. And uh, the last episode that I did, which was with Elvia Wilk, who is a friend of yours, um, I, I really like in uh, her book, Death by Landscape, she kind of proposes this notion that if financial speculation, you know, so clearly shapes human behavior and drives economic markets, then imaginative fiction can most certainly influence cultural or environmental futures, right? And then and you sort of talked about this previously, but like mainstream narratives about the birth of the United States are just exercises and there's speculative uh, past casting, and then they just manifest into what we call history, which then uh, shapes anthropology in North America, et cetera, all these things. So you just kind of, and, and I guess maybe that's why I'm fascinated by the work that you're making because revisionist or decolonial kind of frameworks for looking at history or imagining futures, maybe the reason that they're legitimately threatening is because they sort of reveal that all this stuff is just storytelling anyways. Yeah. And so I, I, I guess I'm just curious about your perspective of speculative narratives. Um, do you see them as galvanizing? Do you see them as they, they can possibly manifest things? Yeah. I mean, I think your point about like how history is just the narrative. And I, I think that's also like kind of like an Anishinaabe thing, like in terms of orality as a transmission hmm. um, that like history is a narrative in service of the people in the present mm-hmm. um, and thinking about how to use history as a kind of malleable form to kind of construct, yeah, like a past or a future we would actually like to inhabit. Um, yeah. And but I also, there's like all this talk about like, you know, uh, native artists and, or native people and storytelling and how that's like something that we have, you know? But I feel like that's actually like a shortcoming or doesn't really paint the full picture because it's not about just telling the mm-hmm. story. It's not like, oh, now the story's told and now things are different. It's about mm-hmm. the debate and exchange and the dialogue that happens after the story, about the disagreements, about the confusion, about the necessity for clarification or yeah. addressing omissions. Um, so I also think that like the films we're making, they don't offer any solutions, which is kind of obnoxious. It's like a provocation and it's a provocation mm-hmm. for a conversation after the film ends. And I think that's really where we're hoping that like you know, if art can have some kind of material change, that that's where it happens. Is like planting those seeds of ideas, not so much like it actually does something in in the act of consuming it. And I mean, that's like the core question: empty metal is like, mm-hmm. can art be political in a meaningful way? Yeah. And we're kind of like asking that question while satirizing ourselves, asking that question. You know, I I won't give away anything about the ending of the film or anything like that, but it does have this part of what was captivating about empty metal is that there's this proposal within it that these sort of groups of people who may not recognize one another along cultural lines will necessarily have to kind of like find common ground in a struggle yeah and this is like a very kind of um this is antithetical to the way that things work in the in the frivolous now right or the way that we kind of understand that they work it's like everything's a binary of like you're on this side or you're on this side and so this notion and what is complicated about that film is that i'm watching it going oh what will be the what will be the intersection of all these people and then even if it doesn't tell me how to do that or deliver it properly like to imagine that is i think kind of uh invigorating 
Hopefully, you know, yeah. like that's energizing. It's it's exciting, you know. I mean, the movie's exciting, and I was like excited watching it. And, and I mean that in multiple interpretations of that term, excited. Like I was just, oh my god, but also like agitated, and uh, in in a way that was like energizing, you know. And I think that's good. No, I think it's bad. Actually, I take it back. I think it's bad. I don't think art should do that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I guess I mean that kind of like that if you can imagine these things and it just simply expands it, it creates a horizon that's expansive instead of this really narrow like well i guess that's the way it is well, it's also funny too that the shared territory is political violence like on the left and the right if you go far enough one way they actually like kind of link up in this weird mm-hmm. <laughs> zone or even just like <laughs> uh, certain people i had conversations with like after january 6th were like upset they were like dang they did that before we could you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's also like January 6th. That's like classic Native activism. Like taking over mm, the BIA yeah. office in D.C. in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Alcatraz. Yeah, Alcatraz. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there was like those ranchers who did that like around 2015. Bundy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the Bundys, yeah. And I think- I'm a Bundy head. Not, I'm not. I don't mean I'm a Bundy head in terms of their... I'm. That narrative is very fascinating in its relationship to like the U.S. nuclear program and like Mormon eschatology, and it's a yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. wild, wild thing. But yeah, you're right. I mean, and that's and it's really funny because there's somebody listening to this who's going to be like, "Don't do horseshoe theory," and it's like, I'm not, <laughs> the point. The point is rather not that people horseshoe around to that, but rather that ideally, what people find is a, a cohesive, harmonious, material struggle. That is probably related to like landscape yeah. and like the climate <laughs> like, that we all have to live here. Well, although the weird thing is like that movie came out in 2018 and we started making it like in 2014 or 2015. And like uh-huh. so much has changed since that movie came out that it's also just mm-hmm. like, it's weird to talk about it because it's almost like two different receptions to it. I mean, when we were mm-hmm. making it, we couldn't even imagine that like a call to defund the police would be semi mainstream. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was like, shocking to hear people talk about that in certain circles then you know what i mean um, yeah yeah so i think things have also changed a lot in terms of the horseshoe theory thing whereas like yeah, when we were yeah. playing with the idea it felt like a little more innocent or something or exploratory yeah, yeah. well no i think no, it's funny uh i think about like the artist josh citarella who does yeah. all this research on kind of like french stuff right and i remember i interviewed josh a long time ago and one of the i will never forget this thing that he was talking about but was when he was looking at like um, doomsday prepper aesthetics and basically finding himself on Etsy boards that were populated simultaneously by like anti-vax, like otherwise lib rich yoga moms who wanted to create their own water filtration systems so that they like could grow their plants better. And then like, white separatist like bunker maniacs and so but they all shared these yeah 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 <laughs> so i was like yeah you know we're not so different <laughs> <laughs> um could uh could i ask you about uh new red order so what is or who is new red order yeah new red order is a public secret society uh and anyone's more than welcome to join you can sign up by going to newredorder.org or calling in toll free at one eight 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 new red one. Again, that number is one eight 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 new red one. Woo! <laughs> it's real. We're a public secret society dedicated to expanding indigenous agency through rechanneling the desire for indigeneity. Hmm. 
so we're a public secret society because we emerge out of an actual secret society, which is the improved order of the red man, mm-hmm. which has its history dating back to the Boston Tea Party. Mm-hmm. When they were the Sons of Liberty and they all dressed up like Haudenosaunee or Mohawks to go on the British ship and throw the tea over in protest. And they kind of formed after that, uh, they would meet in wigwams, or the wigwams, like town hall back rooms. And it was like kind of leaders of uh, politics and yeah. business, uh, kind of like the Freemasons, but like a very yeah. American version. And they still exist. They're located in Waco, Texas, just to make things extra weird. I was just there. I wish I, I mean, I don't want to join them, but I would have like, that would be an interesting thing to also try to see while I'm near Waco. Yeah. 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 I think we're going to try to do something with them at some point at their headquarters. They have like a little museum. Oh my God. Sorry for this mild digression, but if you do go to Waco, make sure to go, uh, to the former branch Davidian, uh, compound, which is now a full on QAnon, uh, compound. Oh, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> I went there last summer. That when did that start popping on? Mount Carmel. Um, well, I have a couple books I could send you. That <laughs> I can't just. I have a really good video I can send you too. But they, when, once you kind of go down the rabbit hole, it one hundred percent makes sense that this is the order of operations that someone got to. But it is one of those things again where you realize that you could just kind of jump in the middle and be like we have a shared struggle and we could not we don't need to go into like lizard people uh and child sex trafficking rings and stuff but new red order is open for recruitment yeah and the, so the idea of the public secret is this idea from mick Tausig, the anthropologist who writes about public secrets are these things that we all kind of collectively know but never discuss and kind of the ultimate mm. public secret being that we're living on stolen land um, mm-hmm. So that's how we get to public secret society. And then, so yeah, kind of identifying the desires for indigeneity from indigenous and non-indigenous people. I think that's an important mm-hmm. distinction. Uh, and like maybe anecdotally, like thinking about things like No Dapple Standing Rock, where there was all this kind of like energy behind preventing mm-hmm. that pipeline from going through, mm-hmm. but also the conversation the, the political context of that movement had to get kind of get dumbed down to get support. So instead of a, mm. it, instead of it being about tribal sovereignty and self-determination, which is kind of maybe too unsettling for a large majority of people to get behind because it makes them question yeah. their own place within this country, uh, it yeah. had to get kind of morphed into water is sacred, water right. is life. And that right. was a much easier call to get behind. Uh-huh. But even throughout that process, there was a lot of like non-native and native people like professing their desire towards indigeneity for spiritual purposes or environmental purposes mm. or wanting to engage mm-hmm. in kind of indigenous epistemology for a variety of reasons. And a lot of the times that desire is deemed inappropriate or offensive from indigenous people. And mm. therefore there's the kind of like shutting down or a calling out that happens in that moment. And what we're trying to do is kind of devise strategies where instead of having that energy or that that push towards indigenous self-determination, sovereignty, and futures be kind of kiboshed in that moment to actually try to move past that desire yeah. or to rechannel yeah. it towards actually like productive modes um, to realize indigenous futures. Yeah. So it's a safe space for unsafe ideas. I got you. Yeah. You use the word desire and, and you also, the, the kind of language around New Red Order is really interesting to me because it seems very intentional in that there's, I think you use, I wrote some of this down, you use desire and attraction to indigeneity um, and you mentioned the mission to enlist informants and accomplices. And I think that those are really specific terms, right? Because they're, 
they get into this kind of like seduction yeah. as opposed to being confrontational, meaning like, so like white people are really sensitive uh, and to point out their historical fixation upon or fetishization of indigenous people is to automatically provoke their like reactionary defensive, you know, like, well, I, I didn't, I didn't colonize Wyoming, yeah. you know, like I didn't own slaves, that kind of thing. Um, and in, in whether in, again, you know, their fixation on whether it's indigeneity or, or blackness or any other, other uh and this lexicon though i think like desire and attraction they're kind of like this honeypot and instead of asking for allies which feels like academic and like pseudo performative in a social media sense you ask for informants which feels clandestine or accomplices which feels conspiratorial and it's like so it's just kind of like come on baby you know you want to be a race trader right <laughs> yeah 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 no i think I, yeah we're interested in calling in instead of calling out that's like another uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. slogans or hooks but it's very i just think that that uh the choice of those words though feels so purposeful right because there is so many types of there's so much vocabulary around um social justice that is used i think cynically in academic or institutional circles and so to play with it and kind of have more of this like um beguiling kind of element or something that like makes like plays on that desire yeah. and kind of like says like hey it's kind of bad but maybe it's kind of okay if you can get to right this point of being able to consider a radical notion like land back or you know what i mean if you can get somebody along the way and spark that to come through also like a lot of language around land back is pretty uh harsh or severe or intense sure where it's like actually like putting the blame or onus on individual people it, or i just feel like it, it has a potential to like close off everyone if, if you're making like a claim for land back but doing it in this kind of like agro militant way even though i think there's like a time and a place for that but if that's like sure, the leading yeah. voice in the charge it's just gonna make people tune out rather than tune in a diversity of strategies too is important across that right yeah. you have to have people doing something seductive through entertainment or film or something that gets somebody into it yeah or play or humor and then you can have other people who are pushing that line further yeah. and pushing that line further obviously like it can work harmoniously we're always joking about you know malcolm x is by any means necessary which always has this uh -huh. kind of like militant agro connotation but mm -hmm. if you take it at its value any means <laughs> yeah 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 in uh, new red order that's a whole bunch of different people yeah it's the core contributors are myself my brother zach and jackson Paulus, who's a twin mm -hmm. sculptor and artist but then it's we kind of have like a rotating and revolving membership um, yeah so there's like many members but then also like for specific instances of projects new red order will kind of like expand per project and new red order like a lot of your work uses humor and irony in heavy doses and i think that that's clear probably across most of your engagement. Like I haven't seen every piece you've ever made, but I'm usually like chuckling in, in sometimes ways because I'm like, this is LOL. And then other times I'm like, man, I shouldn't be laughing. At this, you know? <laughs> like, um, uh, and I think that's why I respond to it because it, it does something to me in a way that I think good comedy does, right? And uh, But there's been a lot of understandable like questioning about the efficacy of satire and irony as critical tools. And I know that you're aware of this because I heard you... Uh, talking about how there is this connotation with irony for example that it is like super gen x that it is like this slacker kind of like privileged mentality or it's like armchair commentary like yeah. just kind of like a 
as opposed to a legitimate strategy or praxis. Um, and I think there's also like this hangover from like ad busters and culture jamming. Like once you see Shepard Ferry doing like Obama posters and stuff, it's just like, okay, this whole, this aesthetic is like washed. Yeah. Um, but it seems like you've got confidence in the potential of humor as this tool to reshape pasts and futures. Just like we're talking like this speculation or this idea of complicating time and narrative, like humor is also one of those tools to do that. Um, so how do you think about it? If, if somebody's thinking ah, irony's dead, there's a lot of radical potential left in irony. It's just got a bad rap, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, but also thinking about like the humor thing in connection to the kind of like deduction element that we were talking about earlier. Like it's a mm-hmm. lot of, the the topics that we're addressing in our work are so traumatic and so difficult to talk about. Yeah, yeah. If you yeah. look at them head on, but actually, like, uh-huh. I feel like you foreclose the possibility of certain people engaging with work because of that, right? Or you foreclose the ability for people to formulate their own thoughts from the work because they're just kind of consuming what they expect, and then the reaction is expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas, like, this idea of like unsettling the audience or like constantly shifting the ground so there isn't anything stable to like find an equilibrium on yeah i think it's kind of critical to provoke audiences to have to actively watch and think through all the different kind of twists and turns and i think not to keep going back to the music thing but this idea of like a change up you know like a change up in baseball like a yep. fastball and then a slow pitch yeah, yeah. uh that's yeah. like that tempo shift and tonal shift rapid tempo and tonal shift for us is this strategy that i think we just really like or like naturally like mm-hmm. engaged with but it also allows us to make these kind of serious jokes yeah or like thinking about like you know the cliche of like the sacred clown or like uh the sacred and the profane that, that kind of mixture of things mm-hmm. is yeah. i think a way to kind of open up conversations that would be either like considered rote or cliche or like too overdetermined or too weighty to be discussed in any other way. I feel like I've, I've tried to describe this, the use of uh, comedy when it comes to things that are uh, traumatic or genocidal or all these other things that there's, that there's like this, this way to kind of explain it, that the, the topics aren't funny, but the structures that birthed, propagated and uphold them are absurd to the point of maybe being laughable like that that's and that's that entry point it's like you gotta let the air out for the person who otherwise is gonna shut down and won't they just say okay this is this is too much i can't i can't handle this kind of thing if you can get them to feel that titillation of like a little bit of a relief of like oh my god (laughs) like you you have begun to make them amenable to a point of view or to like a potential future or a revisitation of the past that they otherwise wouldn't be, yeah. right? I think that's totally an argument for irony. And, and you know, if we're going to go back to the music metaphor, it's like most metal sucks, <laughs> right? But then there's really good metal. Yeah. Most everything is bad. Yeah, yeah. Right? And then there's really good. <laughs> well, it's also like, I don't know if irony and earnestness have to be like diametrically opposed. No, you can be super serious about being silly yeah. or like yeah very sincerely uh ironic because you but like satire right is you have to have love of something i mean i know that's like hack to even point out like obviously but like to satirize something properly it comes like that critique comes from a place of care yeah typically if somebody's not just dunking on something. yeah 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 
or like engagement like or like yeah yeah like a quote retweet doesn't come from like a pa- a place of care yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, like, but making an entire film with like a large group of people like clearly you're committed to it right yeah and i think also to your point is the the absurdity of it you know what i mean mm-hmm. like i don't know how else to tackle the absurdity of like the settler colonial right. reality totally other than trying to take the piss out of it a little bit Right. Like, I mean, because how, how, and how else can you have the bandwidth to continue to absorb those histories yeah. without being able to periodically, like, have some kind of any bit of levity yeah. or something, right? I think maybe one other thing, though, too, is that it's also like, I think we're trying to satirize the left in a lot of our work because they have become, uh-huh. it's become very self serious. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, this is like a larger conversation that I'm always kind of struggling with. But like, I got into art because it was transgressive. And because people yeah. could do what they wanted to do. You know, there was this kind of idea of artistic freedom. Sure. And it's interesting times where that's kind of like, I, I don't know how I fall on it. You know what I mean? I, I thought I did at one point, but now I'm kind of like unmoored and confused and drifting. <laughs> um, and I think that's also why I like that that form of irony can be helpful when it's attached with earnestness. Because it's like, yeah. like Empty Metal is a good example where it's like we could, we're stand-ins for the band. We as in like me and Bailey and like, yeah kind of cultural of milieu you know what i mean it's like we're making political art it's like well what the fuck is that uh yeah what does that yeah. do other than yeah no it totally makes sense. i mean a new red order seems as a vehicle like the same thing right like it is this it's a provocation to a uh let's say to a dominant white audience uh in the mainstream art world while at the same time like it is an in-joke to people who kind of like think that the world that is set up for those people is a joke yeah uh, while at the same time being like to anybody who's kind of like, well, you all doing this are just, you're just part of this system. Like, you know, it is, yeah, there's a lot of levels to it where it's like you are being earnest and extremely ironic at the same time. And that's, you know, you're wearing your hearts on your sleeve. It's, it's, it's meaningful, yeah. I think. Well, we're also being yeah. complicit too, you know, and I think we're yeah. into foregrounding that. And that's kind of where that, that term informants comes from. Yeah, and it was actually like what led us to creating New Red Order is like when and not to say played out in the world. Zach and I kind of realized that even though we had done all this work to kind of like uh, not become informants in our own community, that we eventually mm-hmm. still became informants in our own community. And the questions at screenings and non-native places always devolved to tell us more about your spirituality and your connection to nature. I understand. Yeah, and it was like, oh yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm. You know, I'm I'm not going to speak for anybody else, but I have heard other artists uh, who are from indigenous backgrounds talk about that conflict constantly. Yeah. That they're that they maybe have a certain amount of access in an institution and are trying to do two things at once and feeling, yeah, may, I've never until you used it and I heard you talking about it in interviews, like informant as that type of uh, that that's a particular role and and has like an anthropological history too, which I didn't I, I didn't even connect until I heard you talk about yeah. that. But yeah, it's it's that point to the complexity of that and then to flip that and then ask other people to do it. And also to embrace it as opposed to try to figure out how, how to deny that, that desire. Just be like, okay, that's the desire. That's why you want me here. All right, I'll do that. But we have to get someplace else after that. <laughs> you and Zach are working on a new uh, yeah. documentary piece right now. Yeah. So it's kind of like, uh, in a weird way, it's like a follow-up to a not to say, however many years later and it's called Anikobajigan, which means uh great grandfather grandmother great grandson granddaughter um in Anishinaabemowin and we've actually been working on the project for like six years now 
because COVID, everything got messed up. But it's yeah. focused on the rematriation of ancestors or hmm. uh, in, indigenous human remains from libraries, archives, and museums. And the film kind of focuses on has like a local focus, but then an international scope. Uh, where actually in Michigan, there's the Michigan Anishinaabe Cultural Preservation Repatriation Alliance, MAGPRA, and their representatives from the 13 tribes in Michigan that work together uh, to kind of go toe to toe with institutions that have ancestors for their safe return and reburial. So it's this interesting model where it's actually like, universities archives used to kind of pit tribes against each other like oh we have 50 mm. ancestors they might be from your tribe and they might be from your tribe and we don't know which one mm. and we don't want a lawsuit happening so we're not going to give them back to anyone mm. so the michigan tribes got together and formed this alliance which has actually been kind of like a model for other regional tribal relations to follow to be like well we actually don't really care we just want the safe return of the ancestors we're like yeah. not care but like the no, distinction no, between the tribes you. Yeah. is so working that out internally as opposed to like having an external organization pit them against each other. That, that's an example of like the, the absurdity of that bureaucratic system is like, how can you not totally. laugh, I guess, at it, right? Like that's it, but it's also so fucking profane. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And just <laughs> like, demented and bizarre you know, like, and like 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 uh just be like, get why do you want yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you necrophiliac freaks, yeah. you know? Like, why do you need to have it? Give it back. ProPublica just put out this piece right now about uh, about repatriation, rematriation across universities. And I think, like, uh-huh. Berkeley, Harvard, like, they have, like, you know, 20 times the amount of dead natives than they do living students. Oh <laughs> like, when you start looking so, at that. See, like, I'm like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm, like, why am I laughing? It's absurd. You know, it's like, I, yeah. It gets even crazier if you consider Harvard was founded as a school to educate Indians. Yeah. You know what oh I mean? Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. So this is, the film is following these folks. And are you, I mean, I know that you are only kind of midway through it. And it sounds like you've been working on it for a long time. But are are you using similar strategies that you did? I guess it would be like, God, that'd be like seven, well, more than seven, seven since it came out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to say. But you were working on it for years before that. So this has been this kind of long uh very long collaboration i mean you've known each other for a yeah, long time yeah, it yeah. sounds like is that yeah. right <laughs> well, yeah we kind of always had this film in mind but the time uh-huh. we just got sidetracked with other projects and we've been fortunate yeah. actually for this project to get support from uh vision maker media and itvs and uh ford foundation so eventually the plan is if we can pull it off that it would be broadcast on PBS. Cool. So it's also like changing the way we work slightly in terms of like the responsibility or burden of telling this story, which one has this like this film we can't be super irreverent with because of the kind of mm-hmm. spiritual and political connotations of the work. Of course. And also like the care that the people that do the work put into it. And also needing right. a kind of like mentorship and guidance on how to do this in like an ethically and responsible way. That yeah. being said, we'll still make it funky and compelling. And <laughs> yeah, you're pushing, or you're still further developing this nascent cinematic language, but you have a different kind of responsibility because you're working with people outside of your community and also as a model for hopefully uh, people all over the continent or, or yeah. globally who might want to undertake similar kind of collaborative strategies to repatriate or rematriate uh, from these institutions. So yeah, I understand that kind of like wanting to approach it with that kind of sobriety, but keep that, um, you know, make it so it doesn't feel like 
it's just Ken Burns effect going totally. on. You know? <laughs> yeah, not to go back to the music thing, but I'm going to. But like, you know, like, you know, people make breakup albums. You, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. You have to have your, you have these different periods and you have, well, and you also like, you are moving between genre, right? Like in, in a way that isn't, not to pigeonhole you, but to say like, well, no, like genres have different kind of like audiences and settings. And if the idea is to have it broadcast to like a different type of audience, then you want it to come in the vehicle that is recognizable to them so that they feel, I mean, I know you and Bailey talk about what you're doing is like, uh, and this is with uh, your brother, of course, but I've heard you talk about it as like Trojan horse filmmaking, that you show up with something that people recognize so that they're amenable to these maybe radical or new kind of perspectives. To close this out, I know you are doing an event very soon in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan on Monday, February 20th, which is President's Day. That's very exciting. Um, (laughs) We love our presidents, don't we? Um, You're (laughs) going to be giving a lecture that's called How to Commit Crimes Against Reality. That's going to be at the Wealthy Theater, uh, as I said, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's part of Grand Valley State University's Art Celebration. I like that title, How to Commit Crimes Against Reality. So what's what's that about? Yeah, so I think kind of how we were talking earlier about the absurdity of the reality that we're in. Uh, it kind of demands or calls for crimes against it mm-hmm. and ways to kind of, you know, invoke critical fabulation to arrive at a world that we actually want to be living in. Yeah. Um, and I guess the way to commit crimes against reality, I won't go too far into it because I want people to come to the talk, but uh, <laughs> we we invoke this idea of savage philosophy that was coined by Christopher Bracken, which kind of outlines that there's kind of like a history of racialized thinking when it comes to philosophy and trying to reclaim the savage in philosophy, which has maybe been present all along. And and maybe that can become a tool to help to help overcome the incommensurability of the current reality we're stuck with. That's a good preview. Just a little taste. Yeah, yeah, I like it. <laughs> well, Adam, thank you so much for spending some time and talking with me today. Uh, this has been wonderful, and uh, I can't wait to see you and Zach's new piece. And to anybody who's listening, uh, please check out the aforementioned films, uh, all the collaborative stuff. It's pretty incredible. Um, Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Cool. All right. We'll see you all next time. Was it worth it? Is this an insurrection? Are we invisible? The fear of drones is constant. They are a deadly, empty metal. We fall deeper and deeper into the habit of regarding the evolution of culture as something that will progress or regress no matter what we do. People with the agency and the freedom of privacy to flip the status quo attempt to do so without realizing the magic of the mind. People without these privileges have no choice but to realize this magic. In other words, those who truly know humans are the ones who need help. Those who can help do so without knowing humans. 
what must occur is an apocalypse. There exists a nucleus of people who, if they set themselves to the task, whether they know it already or not, are capable of revealing a seminal idea of maintained urgency, an invisible insurrection until everyone is free. It's never them, always you. This willful manifestation of an alternative reality will allow and depend on a forging of impossible alliances, a scrambling of stereotypes. It will be a gradual transition of necessity, more complex and diffuse than any physical war, yet more unnerving than the changing seasons. We must discard this paralytic posture and seize control of the human process by assuming control of ourselves. We must deconstruct ourselves and isolate every useful part of our beings and own that value. We must reject the conventional fiction of unchanging human nature. There is, in fact, no such permanence anywhere. <laughs>